the Giants began the season 0-2, while the Saints were 0-3. Both have only lost once since. This Sunday, they go head-to-head at the Superdome. Touchdown! Coverage begins at noon Eastern on ESPN Radio. You cannot lose games in the NFL and still win. One day I understand. One day, go see the baby be born and come back. You're a Major League Baseball player. Did I not tell you? Yes, you did. Oh, see, don't answer. Now, this are, these are rhetorical questions because you know I told you and you know I'm not. Analytics don't work, don't work at all. It's it just a no crap to some people who were really smart made up to try to get in the game because they had no talent. This kid is a gamer. He's a follower. He's a playmaker and a shot mama. In case you didn't know, I got T-Bowed. He shattered the mold. And all he does is win. All, all, all he does is win. Hello and welcome to Hot Takedown 538 podcast about the week in sports narratives. I am Chadwick Matlin. So happy to be back in the studio. Editor at 538 with me, the full crew, Kate Fagan, yeah. ESPNW columnist. Hey, Kate. Hi, Chad. How are you? I'm I'm good. I'm really happy to see you. Thanks. Happy to see you too. It was a. I watched so much Indian cricket. More Indian cricket huh. than American. Is that baseball. what we're calling the Mets now? <laughs> yeah, they you know so many runs and innings and mm-hmm. overs and overs, wickets and unders. Else. Yeah. How was India though? Uh, it was fantastic. What a strange, fascinating, interesting place to be for two cool. weeks. But I was sitting. We should say hi to Neil Payne, of course. Oh, Neil Payne, yeah. sports writer, sitting right here, you guys. So <laughs> I was so I was listening to the Mets games when I could. On the equivalent of 56K Wi-Fi on my phone, it going in and out. I couldn't get Crackling. any video. Apparently, Chase Utley did a bad thing, but I... He was a scoundrel, according oh, wow. to Nate Silver. Yeah, you have been gone a long I, time. So I missed a lot. I didn't that see it. I only heard like... about it, yeah. And it was this very surreal sort of technological relationship with the Mets where I was only listening, and it was through some miracle that I was listening at all, and yet it still felt pretty far away it was a very strange experience i had anyway neil hi how hey, are you Chad. great good guys we're gonna do an all world series podcast today yay that means no concussion watch we'll get back to concussion watch next week uh which i think i've we've been remiss in, in doing several weeks on um but we're gonna talk about daniel murphy who has embodied so many cliched metaphors i've lost track human torch wrecking ball Steamroller, what else? Roy Hobbs. Roy. <laughs> um, so we're going to talk Murphy. Uh, we're going to talk about how both these teams have defied the odds over and over again. And what we're supposed to make of that? Are, is there such a thing as a team of destiny? Um, or is every team just an outlier in the end? Um, and then finally, Ardent Royals fan and 538 managing editor David Firestone will come into the studio and tell us why the Royals are going to lose. And I, Ardent Mets fan... Yeah. And General Neurotic is going to tell him why he's wrong and why the Mets are going to lose. Stay tuned to the end of the show for that. You guys ready for full baseball? All baseball all the time? Let's do it. How are you feeling, Kate? Never go full baseball. Six straight games with a homer, an OPS of 1462, steals a third when nobody is looking. He's responsible for 25% of the Mets postseason runs. He's the inspiration for one of the takes in our theme song, Daniel Murphy is having the best month of his life. Here's Good Morning America's T.J. Holmes on the legend of Murphy. 
If you would have gone to the Wikipedia page for Daniel Murphy last night, his name was officially changed to Mr. October, but he was also called God. His middle name was Jesus. He was a Supreme Court justice, and he was also called the owner of the Chicago Cubs. The Honorable <laughs> God Jesus Murphy, comma, Cubs owner. owner of the Cubs owner. Right. Uh, guys, should we be in awe, as in awe as we are of Mr. Murphy? I don't even want to hear what comes next or look at the numbers any further. I just want to be in awe. You're is feeling it, good about the awe. Yeah, I'm feeling good about the awe. It's like this is a fun mo- Mets movie to watch. I don't want to. I don't want to go on Rotten Tomatoes. I don't want to see what the smart critics have to say. It's just like a little piece of magic. Sorry, Oscar you winner might, in your heart. That's right. You might want to go on Fandango. But <laughs> so, Neil. At the site, we've been writing about Murphy, our baseball columnist. Rob Arthur has been writing about whether or not we should be surprised. I'm going to read a bunch of numbers in a second. But for you, Statman himself, as you've been watching Danny Murphy, like what goes through your brain as the most sabermetricsy of, of the three of us? Do you see the, the sport for the raw drama that it is when things like this happen, or are you just thinking about regression to the mean over and over and over again? No, I tend not to watch October baseball as being kind of statistically driven. I like to watch it for the drama and for the narratives and for the crazy things that happen. Like, you know, I think with Murphy, yeah, you would go into each of those plate appearances and each of those games and be like, uh, he's a career whatever OPS hitter, not a good but not great career hitter. Uh, so the odds were that he would regress to the mean and uh, that the hot streak would end. But I, I'm not rooting for it to end. I'm I'm like, I want to see more of this. It's, it's fun to see a guy um, uh, hit home runs in six straight games and, and do what he's done. So, I mean, I think that's what October baseball is all about. And I think a lot of people that I follow on Twitter and you know people that I think would have been hardliners maybe ten years ago they would read Fire Joe Morgan and they would you know talk correct all of the the sports hot takers and say oh you know postseason baseball means nothing and it's all random and and all of those like stat nerd angry stat nerd takes that I think emerged uh, about a decade ago I think now everyone has kind of mellowed out and has just been like uh, accepting October baseball for what it is which is it doesn't prove anything. It's not a scientific experiment designed to give you the best team in baseball. It's just supposed to be fun. And baseball actually becomes, you know, after this long sort of grind of the season in which uh, it's very easy to let all of the tiny moves sort of wash over you. Uh, even if you're watching the same team on a night-by-night basis, the the long game is is what people have in mind. In these games, every game is managed like uh, you were coaching the Super Bowl to kind of mix a metaphor with football. Like uh, the small things that that we do, tra- uh, you know, chalk up to randomness during 162 games of the regular season suddenly are they take center stage and they become more than just oh a random you know variance happening on the field. It does seem like we've seen an evolution of how stat heads, sabermetrics, like respond to the postseason or respond to the notion that, look, you can't name everything. You can't have a number to name everything. It's like, even though in another one of our hot takes in our intro is Charles Barkley saying, like, taking a shot at it, there does seem to be a kind of confirmation that it's a part of the game and it serves a valuable role, but it's like everybody's okay now, including those with ownership in sabermetrics to say now, look, let's just watch playoff baseball in a, in a way where we can just be fans again for a minute. So, but then what do we do when no, people when are they calling still- Danny Murphy God and Jesus? Because, okay, so, so some numbers now. So he is 
692 points better in his postseason OPS than he was during the season. That's basically a whole extra Danny Murphy that Danny Murphy has Danny crammed Murphy in. Danny Murphy that we're going with. Oh, is that not what? That's it's what adorable. I call him. That's, it's adorable. Is that my, what they call him? My plush shawl that I hug when I go to sleep <laughs> of Danny Murphy. Yeah. Um, and so if you randomly pick any nine games, which is how many games he's played in the postseason for Murphy's 2015 season, this is according to Rob Arthur. The odds that you'd grab a stretch containing this good of a Danny Murphy, right? This much OPS is four in ten thousand odds. That's in, that's a infinitesimal percent. That's point zero four percent, right? Maybe less than that. I can't do it off the top of my head. But the point is that this is a random, crazy event that we're seeing, and so. It, to 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 sort of anoint him God and Jesus and whatever else feels like we're buying into these kind of narratives that we that we at Hot Takedown often want to want to push against and take down. Well, I don't think so. I mean, I I think being in awe of something that happened uh, is is different from saying that it'll happen again or that you know Murphy intrinsically has this ability. I don't think anyone is seriously saying that he is like the reincarnation of Babe Ruth and and think that that is suddenly like who he is as a ball player mm-hmm. now. Uh, but I think that you know there are various degrees of acceptance of the hot hand, for instance, where some people probably do think that he has raised his ability level over what he's displayed over the past few years, and that some of what we're seeing is real, and some people. Uh, uh, and I would probably be more in the camp of the, these people think that it, it is more of just like he has gotten hot at the right time and uh, is having the best nine-game stretch of his life. So there's more than just being hot at the right time. It's that he's gotten hot for the right team. So so Rob Arthur in his piece also wrote about um, that Murphy isn't even the per- the player this postseason who's most overachieving compared to what we would expect from his regular season. The Cubs' Jorge Soler has been even better than the Jorge Soler we knew, but he's sitting at home. And so like part of it is, is the stakes and, and the, the impact and the effect of, 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 of the production. Well, and part of it is that Danny Murphy went from like good. I prefer Dan. <laughs> I like Daniel. Um, went from like pretty good to like outstanding, which to me is a more impressive jump to a, a baseball fan watching than another player going from like mediocre to to pretty good in the postseason, if that's fair to say of Solaire. I don't he know. also went from pretty good I mean, to Solaire, He had a better yeah, OPS than Danny Murphy. They pretty much were at the same level, I guess, uh, as players like going into the playoffs. So that's, it is kind of more improbable for Solaire. Right. But that's, I think that's my point about narrative, though. It's right. like like these things. I, listen, I have enjoyed the Danny Murphy saga more than more than anybody. And, and from the foothills of the Himalayas. From the foot, yeah, exactly. And it has been. I really had to wrestle with the saber, as you guys were talking about, with the saber metrics nature of, of my job and, and what we talk about here is like, is this actually adding anything to the conversation for me? In some ways, yes, it's telling me how unlikely the incredible story that I'm taking in is. But then you talk about the Solera thing and then also Rob pointed out, um, of all the players uh, in a postseason, there's a 50% chance that some player is going to get this hot compared to their, their normal self. And that so, waters it down a little bit, you know. So, like, what's the what's the role that 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 these numbers are playing? Well, I don't know. That kind of so that's every other postseason. There's a player who has this kind of streak. So, if you are a specific fan of the Mets, that means that what I don't even know how to do the math on that. Every other time, when your team's in the postseason, which is rare, are, right? Which is rare. With. And then in in a team that's going to the World Series, like so, I don't know how to do that math, but it feels like it is a once in a generation 
performance by a, by your team's player in the postseason. Neil, you might want to help help me out a little bit on how the, those numbers would play out for each specific team. Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously, once you're in the playoffs, having a player play like Murphy is going to increase your odds of of going to the World Series, uh, just because he's been so great. Uh, but yeah, the, for it to happen to what, a specific team that you are rooting for is really rare. And for it to happen, I, I think it probably doesn't increase the odds of making the World Series as much as you would want it to. Like with Solaire, it didn't really help the Cubs make it to the World Series because, you know, in, in addition to him cooling off in the, uh, in the NLCS, uh, a lot of his teammates also played below their standards. So I think it's a matter of like, uh, a lot of times we think of these as like kind of competing hot and cold streaks. Uh, and you can even see that with the Mets where like as hot as Murphy was, Lucas Duda was not necessarily having the best postseason until maybe the last game of the NLCS. So, uh, and David Wright too. So uh, you see like, if you can balance out your your hot streaks with guys that are not like in super cold streaks to offset it, then that's sort of almost like how you go deep in in the playoffs in baseball. And so, and we really haven't figured out a way to kind of engineer that to happen as much as it just is something that like it happens. You know, it's going to happen to some guys will be hot, some will be cold. You just roll the dice and hope for the best. Yeah. But I think to your larger point about like, does it add anything? For me, to see like the framework of whether what he's doing is once in a generation or not, or to have all those numbers, I, I don't know. It doesn't, I don't really need all of that because there are certain things that are happening with Daniel Murphy and with the Mets that just supersede and transcend anything that you can tell me nuts and bolts wise. Like, I wouldn't feel any differently about the Mets right now if the numbers pointed out that this was the first time in Major League Baseball history this had happened. It wouldn't matter to me. Right. For me, it's been it's been difficult because I think I actually care about these games, right? I, I care about the Mets and I, I care about what happens in the chaos and the randomness and whatever else. And I think what we do on the show and what we do at 538 and in general with stats, we're looking at things pretty objectively and, and from the outside um, and talking about leagues as a whole or, or, or trends as a whole or whatever else. And we're, it's often that we aren't really involved in them in, in any way. And the moment I've found that I'm really involved in a high-stakes venture with my team, I just don't – it doesn't matter to me, these numbers. And that's been a real, like, foundational sh- – like, I, I feel like – my sabermetrics interest has been shaken by that a little bit, which yeah. is like what we, we it, it's one thing to talk about it when you don't care, but if if these if this thing that you do care about, which is sabermetrics in my case, don't doesn't apply when I do care about this other thing, like that that feels like an incongruity that I can't quite square the circle of. Just compartmentalize, Chad. <laughs> yeah, right. Maybe I'm thinking about this too much, basically. Yeah, I mean, like I had to pick either the Royals or the Mets to win the series on around the horn today and like poured over the numbers, right? They're like Mets throw fastballs, 95 mile per hour on 38% of their, you know, their three aces. And, but the Royals hit 284. It, it just felt like it felt like all, all I had to do was like, because I'm a Mets fan and rooting for them. Mm-hmm. Like I wanted the numbers to mean what I wanted them to mean. Right. There's a liber- so, it's almost liberating, right? It's like if the numbers are this, in, in this case, this even in many ways, or you mm-hmm. can, make the narrative both ways about the numbers mm-hmm. then it just means you get to watch the games and, and have fun basically yeah. yeah okay let's move on a similar related let's conversation take to, one step to a different Mets topic well not to the Royals <laughs> and, and the Mets but the Royals too so the Royals were down 6-2 to two in the 7th inning of an elimination game in the ALDS they had a 1.6% chance 
of winning the game and a less than 1% chance of winning the pennant in that moment. They came back to win that game four against the Rangers. They won the series. They obviously won the series against the Blue Jays as well in the ALCS. The Mets, meanwhile, had a 20% chance of making the playoffs in early July and seemed to be one Danny Murphy game away from losing to Zach Greinke and the Dodgers in the NLDS. So my question is, what are we to make of these improbable runs that both of the teams have taken, it seems, to, to get to uh, to the World Series? The, the traditional way to talk about it is to mention a team's drive or the will to win. Here, for example, is Ned Yost after the Royals won the ALCS. Last year at this time, we were so excited to be here. This year, from the first day of spring training, we expected to be here. You know, our players, they, they had such a great season. They would never quit. They continued the battle, even when the chips were down a little bit. So, help me out. Help me be a good empiricist, basically. <laughs> so, when you look at this, and this is the case for all sports, whatever teams end up in the finals... It just seems so crazy and outlandish oftentimes that they're there. So, like, how am I supposed to think about this as a good empiricist? Well, uh, I don't think that there is such a thing as a team of destiny. I'll just put it right out there because it's silly. Like, a team of destiny would imply that a, some team had a 100% chance of winning beforehand. And such a destiny absolutist, It Neil. just does, But it doesn't make sense. Right. Like, the... You know, some two teams are going to meet in the World Series, and when you 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 know once you know which two teams that those are, you can look back at their season and especially in the playoffs, and you can pick out moments where perhaps it seemed like they weren't going to make it, and and they you know had an an amazing unlikely comeback or whatever, and and you can say it seems like destiny, but if you replayed the season again. Uh, the odds are that it wouldn't even be the same two teams, and then whichever those two teams were, you could c- kind of go back with that knowledge and pick out moments from their season too. So I think it's like it's it's a really silly concept. I know why we do it, and I think it also speaks to kind of that tug of war between empiricism and fandom, almost where you feel like you need to justify the investment that you make a lot in in these teams, the emotional investment, the time investment. Uh, if if a lot of it does does come down to randomness i think one mm-hmm. of our instincts is to sort of feel like we've wasted our time or like what's the point uh and and so to kind of combat that we need to have these narratives uh, almost like a spiritual narrative surrounding a team where oh they were a team of destiny so instead of investing in something that either worked out or didn't but but it was based on coin flips or rolls of the dice uh, i invested in it and i was rewarded it really is like a religious narrative in a lot of ways yeah i was gonna say when you mentioned the the destiny piece that there must have been a hundred percent destined outcome well that that then leads us to believe that there was some sort of destiny god that decided that that outcome right who should decides be in place. what like, is the team of destiny beforehand. right and that then and could becomes, they just what if they tanked what if the sixers were the team of right. destiny and they they you know tanked the whole season but they still won <laughs> you guys because they're the team of destiny it's it's so stupid. the daily news but, has decided the Mets are the team of destiny of for course example. they have. i know of course i'm saying but like to your point Neil, I mean, th- this this is a word that is thrown around all the time in sports. Like dynasty. I'd like to yeah. think yeah. less so now than, than in the past, but mm-hmm. go on. Oh, so I, I disagree. I, I feel like the, the, the conversation around greatness is is just as inflated mm-hmm. and fatalistic Grandiose. As, as it was before. And and I was, I was trying to think about the closest in, in, the, in the discussion of this, sorry, in the, while this podcast has, has been going on, the closest we've come to a true 
team of destiny that we talked about, and maybe it's the Golden State Warriors who were favored from. Uh, I'm not saying that they were team destiny. I'm saying like it seemed as though they were going to win, and then they did. Throughout. And then they did right, but still, you know, percentage wise, I'm sure Neil, you had done some projection. Well, and and was, or you could say the Kentucky and the NCAA tournament right. seemed to be. They t- seemed like and a then, team then of I mean, they won that sure. one. They pulled out that one game and like. In the round of like a miracle elite eight, yeah. where they like their chances for winning were like one percent. It was a Michigan State, I think, against Michigan State. Yeah, maybe. Um. So, but I loved what you said about the fact that we reject notions of randomness just as human beings. It's like if we're being told, if I'm being told as a Mets fan, and Chad's being told as, and, and now Neil as a Mets fan as well. Like I'm rooting for them. your. <laughs> like this is completely random. Your Mets, there's nothing like human sort of these stories we tell ourselves that have created this moment for you. It is simply this random outcome that if we played the season a thousand times, maybe the Mets would win, you know, 60 of them. And that's all this is. It's the same idea like that, okay, the world is just like nothing, right? I'm sorry to get like too deep, right? But we we create stories to make sure that that's not the reality. So I've created a story that it's Wilmer, Wilmer Flores, like the night he was traded, that like changed everything that turned the Mets into right. like his tears were almost like an offering to the destiny gods right, <laughs> right that's right like I've told myself Averting this story the Gomez because trade Cespedes comes in at all uh, I mean it's a great narrative it's a fantastic so narrative. you get right because if you told me it was random and we're evolutionary and we're just black to black I can't deal with it so but I, it, what's interesting is it seems as though what I'm hearing is that I, I, it re- it's reminding me of the conversation around soulmates when you date someone or something like that, right? <laughs> right. Like depending on your feelings about commitment and about the spectrum of sexuality, whatever else, like you, you might, you may or may not be ending up with somebody no matter what. And the question is, the route that you take there was it some so to make sense of it, right? Because to, to make sense of meeting someone and falling in love and whatever else, and I feel like I've fallen in love with the Mets, obviously in my life, <laughs> and to make sense of that and to make sense that they're in the World Series or to make sense that I'm engaged or whatever else is a crazy thing, and it's bigger, it's it's too big for our brains to handle, and so we fall back on these narratives, but they feel really good. Like if the Mets win the World Series, I'm going to think that something was special about this team. And I don't have to think about it within a religious sense, obviously, or within a, within a fatalistic sense. But maybe something was special. And it might just be <laughs> that Danny Murphy hit six home, six home runs in six straight games and stole a third base when no one was looking. And I think, I guess it, it, I mean, it's very special to the fans of the team that ends up winning. So I don't think it takes anything away from the experience. And it probably adds a great deal to actually believe that, you know, in these narratives about destiny or what have you. Uh, I think the problem comes in when you start, uh, like if, if there was someone in charge of building the team, for instance, that started thinking in those terms mm-hmm. and, and didn't actually kind of take this clear-eyed sort of like... But uh, we heard Ned Yost say that they expected to be there, right? And there was almost a causality that was You implied. have to expect to be there if you're a major league baseball player or team, right? Like, uh, I mean, if you have aspirations to win a championship... That that self belief is almost like a necessary requirement to be here at the end of the season. I think, right? It's kind of like with writing; you can't just wait to be inspired. You've got to like sit down and do the hard work, and then retroactively, you can tell the story about how you were inspired, and then like you wrote by the ocean. And <laughs> but you're like these teams have to do the. Wor- this is where this analogy comes. These teams have to do the work, lay the groundwork, make the right decisions, and then if we want to retrofit 
some kind of team of destiny narrative like the Royals are trying to do and like Mets fans are trying to do, well, then that, that's part of the game. But that doesn't mean that they could just like put anybody out there and show up and win right. because like 2015 was the Mets year. And if you played it a thousand times, they were going to win a thousand times. And how many teams have we seen that were almost like prematurely anointed and will to keep it on the Mets angle? Think about the Washington Nationals, who seemed like a team of destiny, at least during the offseason last year when they added all of these pieces. And that totally disintegrated, but you can bet that if they didn't disintegrate the way they did and they were here at the end of the season, then you would have that narrative about how, you know, they went out and they got all this great talent. And the Warriors are interesting uh, to, that you brought it up, Chad, because there's almost like a weird counter-destiny narrative that's been going on. I forget which player it was, uh, but someone said during training camp that they were lucky. Uh, there's, this fr- there's almost like a debate that has been sparked over the last cool. month or so about how they were lucky because they didn't have to face the Spurs. They didn't have to face uh, you know, some of the other juggernaut teams that they could have gone through. And that is, uh, it's like your dest- the destiny that you take on yourself is being almost negated by your opponents who say that it wasn't destiny. They, they use luck as, a, uh, as, a, as a, almost like a weapon against your championship to try to devalue it. And, and there's nothing the Warriors can do because we can't go play 2014 and have them face the Spurs and then you know, Durant and- they beat hurt. the teams that beat and, those teams. Right, so it's, it's kind of like, how can they even what defend themselves even against want? that yeah. statement? Because we can't go back and make them take the hardest road to the finals, so they have nothing, they can't say anything to that. I'm realizing that argument is sort of a companion to the nobody believes in us argument, which is that nobody yeah. thinks we're destined. You know, <laughs> like nobody thinks that we are destined to win, and so therefore we are destined to win. Like, no matter what, we're trying to fill these holes to, to motivate, or athletes are trying to fill the holes to motivate in some way. Um, and I, I would think... And Kate, maybe you can speak to this. It would be really difficult to be an athlete who believed in total randomness and chaos because it's like, how do you get up for that? Just thinking like right. I can, I can do the best I can to prepare myself, you know, to to execute on the highest level. But in the end, I don't have as much control over a situation yeah. as it seems. And it feels like we're getting occasionally a little heavy in like God and like destiny talk. But I'll, to add to that, like heaviness. Like, we tell ourselves stories in order to live is like a Joan Didion quote, which is applicable to almost every walk of life in sports as well. I mean, nobody, no athlete's going to get motivated by the, the the clear cut numbers or just staring at a spreadsheet about how they might win. They're going to be motivated by a story that someone told them about why they aren't supposed to win or why they are supposed to win or their, their history as a player and why they became great. I mean, Although, all that is motivation. I love the idea of like a team in the huddle kind of like putting their hands in and be like, <laughs> let's weight this random number generator slightly in our favor on three. Arian Foster, known atheist. I know. Out for the season. Coincidence? Causality? <laughs> God's retribution. Okay, guys, let's leave it there. I will say the anxiety level in this studio is about to skyrocket. Mm. because a Mets fan and a Royals fan is about to say why their teams suck uh, and are not going to win the World Series. <laughs> and so I think you guys should take shelter while I talk to David Fires. Okay. Head for the hills, Kate. Okay, bye. Let's go. But you'll be back for Sig Dig. If you really need us. We, I, we can't do it. If there's you. anything left of the right. studio. Yeah. can't do that. <laughs> it's, just, it's just a hollowed out bomb <laughs> shelter. All right, Neil and Kate have fled with me in the studio. 538's David Firestone. David, prove your Royals bona fides to the listeners. How far back does your misery go? The very beginning, 1969, when they replaced the Kansas City Athletics. Uh, we were there, um, and I followed them and 
days of triumph and many, many days of failure ever since. So you are a Kansas City native. Yes. And how strange has it been to watch them be good after all these years of, of being bad? It's an out-of-body experience. <laughs> I'm sure you know that sense, and we'll talk about the comparative sense of, uh, uh, of uh, the tradition of, of despair that we share. But uh, I can't believe that it's happening. I didn't think it would happen one year, let alone uh, two, uh, two years back-to-back. -back. It's amazing. So I brought you here so that both of us can unburden ourselves on one another as good neurotic baseball fans. We cannot help but think our team is somehow going to blow it. In, in some big moment, and there's no bigger moment or bigger stage than the World Series. Um, so I figured we'd get together and share three reasons why my Mets and your Royals are going to flame out. Do you want me to start? Please do. Okay. So the biggest thing that I have been struggling to get my head around is the Mets fastballs versus the Royals contact rate. And the same metrics types have been really interested in this because the Mets dominated the Cubs, and one of the reasons was because the Cubs could not make any contact with, with the Mets fastballs. Um, Ed Grantland, Ben Lindbergh, and Jonah Carey wrote this World Series preview that was quite good. Um, and they noted that uh, of 779 Mets pitches this postseason, 511, which is 65.6%, have left the hand with a velocity of at least 95 <laughs> miles an hour, which sounds terrifying, except the Royals are really good at hitting that. They're, they're weighted on base average. Woba, which longtime listeners will remember from a stat school on hot takedown, goes up as the balls get faster, which is so, – so it seems to me like there's a strength for strength thing here. And what I fear is that the Mets' young guns are just going to get um, contact rated to death, that the balls are going to go into the infield, and then chaos takes over. The Cubs, uh, I think, had a, a pretty high strikeout rate uh, compared to other postseason teams, and the uh, Royals have uh, the best contact rate. Um, th it's something about their eye. Uh, it's something about their sense of judgment, and they also are great at picking up on cues from pitchers. Um, and there was a great uh, SI story the other day about how they uh, started to figure out uh, Price's moves. And, um, you know, I don't know exactly what it is. Um, it's a combination of aggressiveness and judgment, but uh, I think that's probably the biggest thing that Mets fans should fear at this point. Okay. Terror number two. And th we, I am in full irrational hot take zone here. I am convinced that Jacob deGrom is secretly just toast, that, that we just have – he has had two starts in a row now in which he has been on the razor edge of just totally falling apart. Terry Collins left him in too long, in my opinion. He let him go through a third time in the order when he looked gassed from the moment he stepped out. When you look at his um, the, the the line drive rate on his pitches on Brooks Baseball, uh, his sliders are getting hit for higher line drive rates than they have all season. Uh, his He's giving up more fly balls than he has all season in October. Uh, he's, he has a higher whiff rate, but when, as we said, when the Royals make contact, I'm worried that that his pitches aren't moving the same way, and, and the numbers sort of back it up if you look in the, the right cynical way. Maybe you could make a case that he's a good five-inning pitcher and not a seven- or eight-inning pitcher. Um, but one of the problems, and maybe you're going to get to this, is that the bullpen, uh, with one exception, uh, the Mets, isn't nearly as strong as the Royals, and so they wind up leaving pitchers in way too long. Um, I, I really don't understand that philosophy, like having come from kind of the Royals' background recently uh, of, of – leaving these very young starting pitchers. And as, as strong as they are, as, as controlled as they are, 
they're just getting weary, it looks to me. Yeah, the bullpen's not even on my list. And so if we went right. to four, pla- four places, certainly it would have been. To me, the Mets bullpen has been mediocre more or less all year long. And so in my, my, in my terror, I, I know it's a known quantity. You know, I, in my terror dreams, it's not something that I, I can't make sense of the way that I can't make sense of whether contact rate is going to trump fastballs or whether DeGrom is just secretly done. Um, but but the the bullpen is, is, I agree, not good. Okay, number three, Danny Murphy. Mm-hmm. He just can't keep doing this. Right. He can't keep doing this. So we dwelled on this in the podcast earlier before you were here. Uh, but what does this Mets team look like without Daniel Murphy in the middle? We know that they probably would have lost game five against the Dodgers. We know also know that the Mets are super streaky. Lucas Duda has disappeared. Maybe he's come back. He's easily going to disappear again in the World Series. Cespedes can look glorious while flailing all around the, the, the strike zone. Darno can disappear. Wright has disappeared. I just see a middle of this order that falls in on itself, especially if Murphy regresses even remotely to the mean. And even though the, the Royals pitchers are, pitchers are nothing to sniff at, their starters at least, um, I see... I see just total ineptitude the way that I saw the Mets be inept against the Yankees late in the season, against the Phillies when home field advantage was on the line. And this is this could set the stuff where it just feels totally random that the Mets could just stop hitting. Um, every New York team, it seems to me, because of the uh, poetic needs of the local sports writers, <laughs> needs a narrative. Um, and clearly the narrative, and this, we have to leave the realm of stats here, the narrative is Murphy. And without him... The fable of this year's Mets, it seems to me, kind of falls apart um, to some degree. I mean, obviously, they've got a lot of other strengths, but but he's the one everyone's talking about. And I think uh, I have a feeling that the Royals are, have you know paid for some serious scouting there, are figuring out exactly uh, how to get to that guy because the one thing they have to destroy is this notion of the narrative that he is uh, some kind of mirac- a miraculous symbol of the Mets' resurgence, and uh, they're going to try and do everything to take that down. I don't even think they need to scout him that hard. I think just <laughs> pitching him. That's I mean, right. the guy's a two seventy five hitter, and he's hitting he's hitting out of his mind. Okay, so those are my those are my anxieties. Do I dare hear yours? <laughs> do you think your anxiety stacks up? To, Absolutely. To, okay. Absolutely. Right. So, and so, by the way, we have a lot of shared sense of failure here that that is prompting this. So. Uh, in, in my case, it's kind of the opposite of yours. I have a lot of confidence in our bullpen. Starting pitching is going to be a big problem. Um, these guys are erratic. Uh, and as much as we uh, like to imagine otherwise, they have failed. And we, Those of us who have watched the entire season have seen many, many outings um, where uh, uh, Volquez, um, uh, Ventura, et cetera, have just gone out there and given miserable performances. And half of it seems, uh, or maybe more than half, uh, psychological, um, that, that somehow it's, you're able to get to them, that if you call time in the box, if you step out of the box you can, and infuriate them, it'll throw them off for, uh, for an inning or two. Um, and with Cueto, for example, uh, who really is the symbol of erraticism on this starting rotation, all you have to do is get him in a, uh, uh, an out-of-town park and start yelling at him. Um, he seems that fragile to Royals fans. Well, they started yelling Cueto, Cueto in Toronto, and it clearly got to him. Hmm. That's one of the reasons why he's pitching in Game Two and not um, and not at, uh, at City Field. Yeah, and so and it seems also like th- this is not the case where Cueto's ERA is inflated. I don't have the numbers in front of, in front of me, um, but his his sabermetric stats are also not 
promising. And, and right. there's been lots of talk about whether his, his, he has an injury that's secret and that, that they're going to reveal at the end of the season. But, but so as a Mets fan, I, I think, too, the starters are a joke. And the Mets have four – in each game, basically, you could argue that they have the better starter, right. um, depending on your feelings on Chris Young and Steve Matz. And so to me, that feels like a real opportunity to avoid the Royals bullpen as a whole. And right. you're saying that you're, you're feeling that, too. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, it's the secret fear, actually not so secret, of every Kansas City fan this year. Okay. Number two. Two, and this is a mixed bag, of course, is the corollary to that, and that's Ned Yost uh, and his tendency to stick with these starters too long. Ultimately, all of us have to bow down to his judgment because for all the crazy criticism he gets, he is generally proven right, and no one knows why. So this is where you and I differ. Getting something right is different than being proven right in the sense that he's making the wrong decisions over and over again that happened to come out okay, but that doesn't mean that he was right. It means he was wrong and got bailed out to me. That's right. And, you know, you saw that the other night. Um, time after time, uh, there, there have been moments he left in um, uh, Ryan Madsen too long uh, and, uh, and Bautista hit that home run. Um, you know, but in many of the games where he has made bad decisions like that, uh, some miracle happens. Uh, in this case, um, Lorenzo Cain running from first uh, that suddenly bails him out and he looks great. Um, however, a lot of fans point out that he's also the one who put together a terrific scouting team. Um, he is the one who ultimately made possible a coaching staff that got Lorenzo Cain in from first by windmilling him in. So, you know, for every crazy decision he, me- he makes, and it's usually sticking too long with a starter. Um, there's a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff that I think has generally proven him uh, correct. But nonetheless, he makes me very nervous. In big moments, like that's right. whether or not to leave Ventura in for, for another right. trip to the order. Okay. The third one is completely irrational. And I talked to Neil about this before this, uh, this podcast, and he told me I was crazy. But I think a lot of American League uh, fans, no matter what team they support, fear going into uh, a National League park um, and – and having to kind of tear up their um, their lineup. Uh, in our case, you know, Ken Morales, uh, or as a star writer likes to call him, Big Ken Morales, is a huge a huge part of uh, of their offense. Um, he will not be able to uh, to play in the National League park, and you know, it just scares me. It, it just I just have a feeling that somehow this is going to throw everything off. Why did Neil say that was irrational? Because to me, I also rejoicing at the fact that I don't have to face right. Morales for three of the games. So Neil's point is that National League teams also have a lot to fear because they have to really dig to find a designated hitter in the American League parks. Right. Uh, and sometimes they can't come up with one who equals the... Uh, We're going to start Kelly Johnson on Tuesday night and he's, he's no going to... Morales. Right, exactly. Right. So, you know, we've got four games at home, uh, ideally not, but possibly, uh, and, uh, and the Mets have three. So... Arguably, maybe we've got the advantage, but nonetheless, it still scares scares me. And our and our pitchers are better hitters than than your pitchers are because they're, they're used to hitting. And that's right. Famously, Syndergaard and Mats have had great offensive. That's right. We do have a few pitchers who've been in the National League, but nonetheless, they have no recent experience with that. And it's yes, it does keep me up a little bit at night. Okay, so David, both of us are beside ourselves coming into tonight's game. Do you? Have you thought about whether the Royals are going to win, or is that not even on your mind? Because to even even approach that, despite all these anxieties, is to curse them or or, or somehow jinx them. I, I am in full. We just spoke about this in the podcast. In full irrational mode about the Mets, I'm feeling buffeted by the the winds of destiny and 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 the history of of total ineptitude. And 
uh, and I don't know whether I'm feeling sort of good, I must say, despite all those anxieties, given the starting pitching. But the moment I feel I let myself feel that is the moment I realize I'm just setting myself up for total right. pain. Right. Well, part of it is after what Royals fans went through last year, those final moments of the final game. Um, Send Alex Gordon. That's right. Um, which, by the way, would have been a bad move. <laughs> Sorry, Nate. Um, you know, there's nothing that really can can bother us at this point. I mean, there's no fate anymore. There's no sense. Uh, oh, come on. You if you're upset. in game seven again, you're not going to feel upset if they lose. The, the, the great thing about it was, you know, uh, you know, we were all incredibly proud of the Royals last year. It was a great season and a great series. This year has been even better. Um, to have enjoyed this much baseball, uh, to see this many games, and especially, by the way, that last completely hair-raising, soul-ringing game of game six, game six uh, and to have gotten through that, um, just to be in the World Series at this point, to have a, a pretty strong shot. I still think it's going to be the Royals in seven. Um, you know, but if it isn't, you know, I just feel completely zen about this at this point because we've already been through the worst so that much can happen. Grace, David. I have, I have none of that grace. I will be. I, I once thought when the Mets were, were so bad in, in mid July that the postseason was such a, like a winning season would have been enough. And I, I, I've been become so greedy. The moment that I have, I, you, you only get so many shots at, at the World Season at Series, at the postseason in general, especially in baseball, where things are can be so random. Come the postseason, and I cannot imagine. I, I will not be calm. I will not be graceful. If they lose, I might not show up to work the next day, <laughs> David. You might, you might have to give me an excused absence. <laughs> That's right. Um, all right, David. Thanks for coming in, and we'll have to we'll have to watch and see Can't if our anxieties wait. come true. It's going to be a great week. Excellent. Thanks. All right. I promised it was an all baseball podcast, but Allison McCann is here to liberate us and give us a little spice in our life. Allison, welcome back to the show. As always. Hey, Chad. Thanks for having me. So every week you come, you bring us our significant digit, a telling number from the world of sports. What do you have this week? This is a particularly meaningful, significant digit to me. Um, it is 184, which is the greatest number of international goals scored by the one and only Abby Wambach, uh, who is retiring. She announced hmm. that uh, today, that um, December 16th will be her last game with the U.S. Women's National Team. Um, yeah, and she, she remains far ahead of the pack with her 184 international goals. Um, so cheers to you, Abby. Yeah. Will she keep playing in, in club soccer? And uh, no. She she's, didn't she's even done. play last she's year. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Yeah. So is, is she, how long is she going to be the best ever? Do we think like, is this such a Titanic achievement? Well, who's that, in second? How, how much well, was Mia? Have? And now yeah. me, um, obviously me is retired. So Christine Sinclair, um, the Canadian forward is at one fifty five, but she's probably also on her way out. She'll probably have mm -hmm. another Olympics in her, but she's, also quite a bit older. Wait, is Christine above Mia? No, she's behind okay. Mia, but cool. only three, three behind Mia. Yeah. So it's possible that we've witnessed like the greatest the goat female soccer career that we're going to see for the next generation or, or two, right? I mean, this, it seems to me like there's no obvious And candidate. male. <laughs> right. The males yeah. are like down in the 100, the greatest goal scorer, I think, is like at 100, hmm. which probably speaks to other things, not just 
but uh, uh, right. not just Abby's greatness, but also like the difference between yeah. the programs. My favorite are that like the stats about like her head has scored seventy seven international goals, <laughs> which is still like better than like the highest scoring body part <laughs> yeah. on you know, record. And I'll add that like there's a lot of athletes who have careers where the numbers seem to astound you, but they don't have any moments where you can like really remember where you were. Um, and Kobe comes to mind there, right? Like not to take Kobe shot, but like there's not I don't have a Kobe moment. Um, and a lot of athletes, right? You just don't have moments. I mean, with Abby, like, she, like, delivered moments. And I'm not saying you don't practice just to deliver moments. And, and sometimes you have no control over it. I'm sure Neil would be like, look, well, you have a 2% chance of having, like, <laughs> a moment in your career. But with her, like, that 2011 goal, like, it didn't matter. I'm glad they got the World Cup and I'm glad Abby got the World Cup. But it almost didn't matter what she did after that because she, like, single-headedly – um, wow. Nice. Like, kind of resurrected the U.S. Women's National Team. And obviously, Rapino kicked the ball door, and there's a lot of other people around. But, like, that moment, I remember walking through the airport and, like, watching my my phone. And there, there's not a ton of women's sports moments that get to, like, elevate to that level. Do you remember where you were? Absolutely. Where were you? I was, I was in boston that was the summer i was like playing still and like we were like watching on a couch and it was like so dire and they were like this was going to be the worst performance in the world cup they were about to be- go out in the quarterfinal um and like i just remember the announcing was like so dire too like this is it 22nd yeah. minute or something yeah like? um but anyway and it's i don't know it's i really thought she was gonna stay in here for the next olympics and it's i don't know i think it's nice when people feel this warmly about your retirement and like you kind of ended at a good time, not to say that. I think it's the right time for her. Yeah. I don't think she needed to play in 2016. She has all the medals. I think it was like one of those athletes who walks away, not early, but at the right moment without having to play again. And maybe we see, does she play at all? How is she playing? It's like, look, I'm out. Peace. Right, and uh, like we saw with like Landon Donovan, to take an example on the men's side, sometimes it can get like super awkward uh, <laughs> yeah. with yeah. some of these players if they hang around too long. Totally. So um, yeah, sig dig this week, Abby, the goat, the goat, the true goat. Excellent. Thanks, Allison. All right, listeners. Before we do the outro, I know you all listen in just to hear me rattle off those, You're really spot, good those at final this. credits. Uh, one little programming note. Um, a few weeks ago, we told you about Varsity Letters, an event in New York that a bunch of 538 folks were taking part in, including Neil. Uh, while I heard it was fun, I was away in India, but Neil, uh, it was a conversation about this, the Madden project that you and Walt Hickey have done that we've talked about a few times. Um, you can find, uh, we posted the audio on our website, 538.com. You can find it there if you'd like to hear Neil and Walt talk about... And John Boyce and of John Breaking Boyce Madden. From SB Nation. Absolutely. Right. Talk yeah. about how Madden ratings get made. So check that out. Okay. That will do it for this week's show. Thanks, as always, to Kate Fagan. Thanks, Chad. Good to have you back. Thanks. It was wonderful. It was yeah, nice. It was vibrant. Really nice. I felt good. Yeah. Neil Payne, thanks to you, too. Welcome back, Chad. Our podcast producer is Jody Abergan. Our vid- video producer is Ryan Antel. We get production assistance from Jordan Shulkin and Lois St. Jock. Our intern is Sarah Patterson. You can email us at podcasts at 538.com. We would love to hear what you think about whether you are destined to send that email. Find us at SoundCloud, Stitcher, Downcast, all sorts of other apps. We're all on iTunes, of course, as well. Subscribe at iTunes.com slash 538. Be sure to review and rate the show while you're there. It helps others discover the program. Our theme song is by Mystery Mansion. I'm Chadwick Matlin. Talk to you next time.
Giants began the season 0-2, while the Saints were 0-3. Both have only lost once since. This Sunday, they go head-to-head at the Superdome. Touchdown! Coverage begins at noon Eastern on ESPN Radio.